Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, June the 8th, 2012. This is episode 918, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. You know what that means. On Friday, 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 the show is all about you, the audience. These are all people that in the past about two weeks have picked up the phone. They've matched some numbers. Most of these calls are from last week, so they are mostly about two weeks old. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK is the number you call. Leave your message in about two minutes or less. You actually get a little more time than that, but uh, getting to the point quickly will be more likely to get your call on the air. I'd say 30 to 40% of calls do get on the air. If you have called more than three weeks ago, assume that your call is gone into the world of the abyss, and if you'd like it answered, try again. That's uh, just a, a capacity issue, folks. Lots of great calls don't even get screened sometimes. Uh, some of you guys... Use the think line to call in and, and ask me to do things and stuff like that. Don't do that. Use email. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Do me another favor, guys. I've had people lately doing things like going to certain moderators on the forum and go, can you talk to Jack for me? Don't do that, man. These people have lives and they're all volunteer force. And, you know, if you have something for me, bring it to me. If I don't answer you, I didn't get to you, try again. Please don't leverage. I mean, if you're trying to get something important to me and it's something you know I respond to, like a customer service issue or a problem on the form or something, yeah, do that then. But just like I want to meet up with you and have a beer or something, don't bother my moderators with crap like that. Please don't do that. It's just really not cool and it's not necessary. If you email me, I will answer you. If I don't answer you, email me again. It just likely means that you caught me on a bad day, you went in the spam folder, who knows. But get, shoot a couple emails my way. Sooner or later, you're going to hear back from me. Again, the email for that, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It couldn't be more simple. Nobody else screens it. It's mine. I read it every day. Okay? All right. Now, uh, before we get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping today. Uh, item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one, BulkAmmo.com. Gun, no ammo equals expensive club. As simple as that. You want ammo, you want lots of it, you want to be able to practice with it, you want to have it during an ammo shortage. Uh, during an ammo shortage, it's a pretty hot commodity to have a good supply of ammo. So, if you're going to do that, you want to pay the best price and you want to buy your ammo in bulk. Where are you going to get it? BulkAmmo.com. I really don't think it can be more simple or self-explanatory than BulkAmmo.com. And if you go there, you'll find all the common calibers, you'll find great pricing, and you'll get lightning-fast shipping and service. It's, it's just the best place I've found to buy ammo in bulk. And why wouldn't it be? It's BulkAmmo.com. What else would you expect? Great sponsor, great supporter of the show. Uh, next up today, MERS Radio, M-U-R-S hyphen, that's a dash, radio.com. Uh, Rob Belville is a great guy. He doesn't have a whole bunch of stuff. He has a small selection of select equipment. Uh, most of it focused on, of course, the MERS frequency, which is five frequencies, and each has five sub-frequencies. So 25 total frequencies that you can work with, combining security and secondary communications on your property. It's a great way to make sure that you have a secondary means of communications on your property and to have notification if there's someone or something on your property using the motion detectors. Uh, check them out today. Again, MURS-radio.com. Best way to get to MERS Radio, bulk ammo, and all our sponsors, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com first. 
and then click on the banners and you will end up at the right place because there are people out there that want you know companies you know spend money on advertising build up a brand etc they'll get a domain name with a little squirrely difference to it or something like that and basically pirate the brand the companies you hear on the show are personal endorsements from me companies i spend my own money with or i will not take them as advertisers and when i make that recommendation it's not just a service to the advertiser for the fee that they pay annually it's a service to the audience and i want you to deal with the real sponsors all right uh how about something really cool uh a listener named uh jason let me think it's jason i want to make sure i say it right jason in maryland uh recently joined the member support brigade In addition to joining the member support brigade, he sent me enough money to pay for three more memberships. And he wants to buy a membership for three veterans that are not currently members. So this is only people who are veterans of the military. So, you know, Army, uh, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, uh, Coast Guard. I would, I would consider military as well. If you're in one of those services and nothing else, you're eligible to win this. The way that you'll play to win your free membership is send me an email. Uh, to Jack at the survival podcast.com, put in the subject line the following words, all lowercase, three words, free military membership. If you do anything else other than email those to me, it will not end up in the right folder. I will let the contest run through this weekend. On Monday, I will randomly select three winners, completely at random. I'll take however many entrants came in. I'll take a random number generator online. I'll stick it in there. I'll generate three numbers. We'll count it off in the email box. This is absolutely free, paid for as a gift by another uh, military member who recently joined the MSB. So I, I thought that was really cool. And uh, if he wants it to be for military, it's for military because he paid for it. Now, So what am I going to, you know, when I do something like that, I'm going to do something for everybody else. So I'm going to do a sale. New memberships or expired renewals both qualify for this. Existing members, sorry, can't manage that this weekend. Too much going on. Um, but if you want to join the MSB and you've been on the fence about it, $10 off your first year. So this is for annual terms only. $10 off. Uh, and the, the, the code is 10 off. With the, It's not the word 10. 10OFF. No space. All lowercase, 10OFF, 10 off, and you can join. And I'm not putting it on the blog. I'm not putting it on Facebook. I'm not putting it on Twitter. I'm just saying it on the air, and that sale will run through Monday, so the weekend and Monday, and that's it. It's over. I've said it one time, done the end. Uh, next up, I really need to get somebody on the air with me for an interview that's a beekeeper. You don't have to be a super master, super duper expert, whatever word you guys in the beekeeping industry have for it. Just be experienced, know how to set up a hive, know how to get started. Uh, maybe talk a little about, bit about the difference between Langstrom hives and Top Bar. Uh, maybe not. Whatever it is that you do with bees and what you, you, know, what you like about bees, I need a beekeeper to go to the site, click on guests, and fill out the guest survey form. I, I'd love to have that done. So if you are a beekeeper, please consider being a guest on the show. That's that's one that we've not really done and we should do. Um, we'll say nothing about the MSB today because there's a sale. So, you know, other than if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, your discount's better than the sale that I'm running. So, as always, email me with service discount in the subject line, and I will... Uh, I will send you a special discount code. But again, military members, uh, military service people, active duty prior service who are not currently MSB members are eligible to win the free one. Uh, send that in to me, jack of the survival podcast .com, 
and uh, I will uh, I will announce the winners on Monday by first name only. Again, the guy that's doing that, really cool guy, Jason in Maryland, thank you for uh, recognizing the service of our troops. With that, housekeeping wrapped up, let's go ahead and take first call of the day. Hey, Jack, Sean in Connecticut again. Hey, I want to get your point of view on something uh, from a libertarian's point of view. Uh, there's a movement in my in my town among the uh, the older population in town to uh, try to change the way property taxes work and, and introduce a, a two separate mill rates. One mill rate for people over 65 um, that wouldn't include funding the school system, and a uh, separate mill rate for people under 65 that would that would fund the I personally think it seems like changing the rules in the middle of the game as somebody who's uh, well under 65. And uh, I don't like it. I wanted to get your point of view on Thanks. Bye. Well, when you ask a question that way, it really begs two different answers because you, you, you prefaced it with as a libertarian. So as a libertarian, I'm opposed to property tax in the first place, so I don't think anybody should be paying property tax in the first place. So I say, you know, it, it doesn't really matter because nobody should be taxed on the ownership of their property. The end done, I'm sorry. And you say, well, how are we going to pay for schools? How are we going to pay? Then you know what? The way that you fund those, if they're going to be publicly funded, is through uh, through sales tax. And and I, I've said it over and over and over again. I believe that if we only functioned on legitimate forms of government, and I would say schools could be a legitimate form of government, that a 10% national sales tax rate uh, and a, a, a state sales tax rate in most states of about 5%, and if we only focused on roads and schools and the things that government's supposed to be doing, then that would be enough. And that would be a 50 percent sales tax rate on average uh, nationwide with no tax on income, no need for an IRS, blah, 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 yada, yada. So there's the libertarian answer. Get freaking rid of it for everybody. Now, looking at it from a standpoint of working with the system that we have, um, the, the, the hell-bent libertarian in me says if anybody can pay less, good, right? But all it's going to do is, is, is shift the burden to the other part of the population, so if you if you start giving seniors a different tax rate, it shifts the burden. But we have to ask ourselves why the hell this is happening. Well, because our federal government has pilfered the retirement savings of, of people uh, since the 1930s with a scam called Social Security, and they've continued to do so with other programs like Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and they have taken away money that should have been available to these individuals to save and invest for themselves, and now they're living, many of them, on what's called Social Security fixed income. And because of that, when they stop working and they retire, their income dramatically decreases. Many of them have worked very hard, paid for their homes over the years, but you know, over the 10 years between their, say, let's say 65 and 75, the cost of their living continues to increase as these local ass clown governments have also screwed everything up and they keep raising everybody's property taxes based on a property tax assessment of a house that's never going to be sold until this person dies. So I don't like separate rates for different people. I find that to be completely uh, in opposition to the republic and to the concept of a republic. And I, I think it is absolutely, completely contrary to equal rights for all. Um, if you have equal rights of all, then maybe you should have equal burden of all. I mean, that's just very, very simple. But there's a problem there. So what I'm actually in favor of 
is that everybody pays the same tax rate. And I've seen this done in other municipalities, and I'll explain why it actually helps the community when I'm done, because some of you that are very libertarian may not like it. You've got to remember that my actual solution is no more property tax, period. Smaller government, only legitimate functions of government, funded through a sales tax. If the government wants more money, make the economy better stupid, and we'll spend more money. And that's it. And that's all you get. And if you can't fund it with that, then we don't need it. Okay, so understand that before you hear my solution within the system. What I've seen other municipalities do, which seems a lot more fair, a lot more equitable, and a lot more reasonable, is that when a person turns 65, at that point, the assessed value of their property and their tax rate is locked. So at 65, their property taxes don't go down, they're frozen. And they cease going up as long as that elderly person remains living in that home. If they sell it to somebody else, it goes back to the same price of everybody else. If they go, if a person who is retired at age, 65 or older, moves into the community, so they're 70 years old, they don't get it locked at where the previous resident was. They get the current tax rate and tax assessment just like anybody else would, but it also locks. Right? I think within the system, that is a lot more fair and equitable than saying elderly people no longer have to fund the education system. Right? I mean, well, they don't have kids in school. I don't have kids in school. Okay? And I paid more money over my life so far than it costs to educate my one son. So that doesn't, that doesn't play ball with me if we're going to have a system like this. Now, why this is good for the community. Having a population in your city, in your community, with a significant number of elderly retired people is good for the community. They volunteer, they always pay their bills, they keep their property nice, and they bring a multi-generational component into neighborhoods and into communities. So it's good to have them there. And the reality is their income locks. So locking their property tax to me would make sense. It makes them much more stable and it it stops older people from having to sell their homes and move out of their house, especially smart old people who busted their ass for 30 years in one house and have actually paid it off by the time they reach retirement age and all they have is a property tax bill. That property tax bill for a lot of people is $1,000 a month in some states. So I would I like that way better than what's being proposed. Two separate mill rates? Uh-uh. No. But locking at seniority, as long as we're stuck with this system where we have a feudal system now where your ownership of property is taxed, as long as we're there, that makes sense to keep old people from being pushed out. So that means they have to be smart about what they do. They have to think ahead. And again, if somebody moves, if they move into the new neighborhood, well, you've moved. You chose to buy a new house. You pay the current rate, but then it locks again at the, whatever that rate is. I find that to be more than fair. I'd actually like to see more states do things like California's done with existing homeowners. They, they have a, their, their new appraised value can only go up by a certain percentage a year as long as they're holding it and not selling it. I'd like to see more things. And here's why. I want more people stable in their homes. I want more people buying a home for 10, 20, 30 years instead of buying and upgrading and buying and upgrading because that's what led to this economic mess. When this country had a stable housing system, when people bought a house, they bought a house because they wanted to live there, grow a family there, and grow a life there, and retire there. I'd like to see us return to more of that. And if we're going to be stuck with this feudal system, policies like that make the best of a bad situation. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is John in West Virginia. 
again. I was uh, my daughter. She's uh, fixing to be ten years old, and I want to start teaching her uh, a little bit about self-sufficiency and how to take care of herself. I'm just trying to think about. It. I've got a few ideas of how I could do it, and what I should be doing, and what I am doing. Just want to get your two cents on what you think a man ought to do with his daughter. Appreciate it. We'll talk at you later, bud. Well, I've just gotten my second question today. It's my second question with a two-part answer, two distinctively different answers because of the way that our good friend John there in West Virginia uh, uh, finished it. What should a man be doing with his daughters? I'm going to start out with that. Um, the most damaging thing to women in our society today, I believe, is that they don't value themselves enough and that they estimate their value based on what other people, other women, other young men think of them, and they base their value on how they measure up to idiots and imbeciles and dumbasses like the Kardashians, etc., agnosium. And I think that the biggest reason they do that is they don't get enough attention from their fathers, they don't see their fathers as role models, and they don't have their fathers, father, father, fathers, their fathers model for them what a young man who is seeking their attention should do. And I believe that the biggest thing that fathers need to do with their daughters is make sure that they know that they're special, wonderful young women and that they're going to grow into wonderful young women. And what anybody else and anybody any, anywhere else seems to tell them they need to be or need to do is full of shit. And that, they do, and that fathers do that by doting on their daughters, talking to their daughters, spending time with their daughters, and taking their daughters into social situations, and minus the romance, treating them the way they would want a 15, 16, 17, 18, 20, 25-year-old gentleman to treat them when they're dating them. With respect, with decency, to actually go out, and, and in some levels I would say it's almost like dating your daughter. Take them to movies. Take them shopping. Take them places that they want to go. Don't focus on spending lots of money. Focus on spending lots of time teaching life lessons and life respect. Because one of the biggest things that our women need is a survival function. Moving out into society is realizing that you know that having a person in their life that that will will care for them, take care of them, love them, hopefully eventually marry them is a great thing. But they don't need that. They choose that. And, and when two people come into a relationship and both do so by choice, you have a balanced relationship versus a codependent relationship. And young women that come up with that model don't go and gravitate toward douchebag dudes and see them as the father figure because they feel like uh, anybody that will pay attention to me is going to fill this need in me. And they don't know that's what they're doing. That's just what they feel. And if you want your daughter to end up with a douchebag, then don't spend time with her in her life and don't model what a good man is. And, and that, so that's the first answer. Now, on the self-sufficiency answer, I'm going to tell you what children learn from. They do not learn well from what they hear as children. They learn well from what they see. So take your kid out and garden with your kid. Talk to them while you're doing it, then they'll learn. Simple little things in the garden like, you know, because of this, we're always going to have food on the table no matter what happens. These are things that get people toward a self-sufficiency mindset 
awful, awful young. And understand that most kids in their late teens and early 20s will tend to drift away from it. But it's just like as a tree grows, it starts to spread. If the roots are strong, it will always come back to the roots. So the two answers, while different, are actually the same. The way that you have your children, and this goes for boys too, but it's so critical with girls because it's been so left behind because of the whole the, the, the feminist ideal that you know women are the same as men. They're not. They're different. They have different emotional uh, structuring. They have different physical structuring. It's not lesser. It's just different. Okay, if you put me next to a six foot six, three hundred and fifty pound man, we are different. He is not necessarily better than me if I kick him in the knee and he can't run after me. Okay, but we are different, and to not acknowledge that is stupid, right? So we need to acknowledge that between uh, the genders as well. But the biggest thing for any parent out there going, how do I get my kid to understand? How do I get my kid to listen? Shut up and do. Right? Because, because the old, the old cliche, do as I say, not as I do, does not work. It does not work. It will not work. It will never work. Children will, over time, model your behavior. So if when you are taking that little girl of yours, And you are taking her to, to shopping, and she says, well, I want this, I want that. And you go, you know what, we're not, we're not doing that today because financially it doesn't make sense. But let's do this. You want this, that, and this. Let's pick one of them, and let's save up together for it. Then she's going to go into a marriage and a relationship with that kind of an attitude, not because you've told her, because you've shown her, right? And that financial component that things are not love component is as much a survival and self-sufficiency topic today as how to store food how to grow food how to defend yourself because the way that these young people are getting into so much trouble is they're going into this debt-laden society believing that this stuff attracts attention and attention equals love trust me attention does not equal love When someone is raping someone, they have their attention totally fixed on them. It ain't love, right? Attention is attention. Love is love. And there's very different types of attention. Not all attention equals love, but all love has attention going with it. So this is how I view this. If you want your son, daughter, anybody to be self-sufficient, Teach them self-sufficiency by modeling self-sufficiency, making it fun, and asking them what they think. How do you think we could do this better? What do you think would make this better? And when they want stuff, let them lay out the whole list and say, which one of these is most important to you and why? And then in most instances you could say, well, that makes sense, but we can't afford all this stuff. and We can't even buy this right now because we haven't thought about it enough. Let's think about it and decide if it's what we really want. And let's start saving some money together. And I'll put some money in and you put some money in. They don't have to put a lot in, especially if it's a small dollar item. But once the money's all saved up, say, now, do you want to go buy that or do you want to think about it some more? Right? This is how you model life skills. Right, Saying it, telling them, uh-uh. Showing them somebody else doing it, uh-uh. You do it. You model it. They will emulate it. But for God's sakes, those of you men out there with daughters in your lives, especially in broken homes, you go make time. You spend it with your daughter, and you treat her the way you would want a young man to treat her when he's courting her. And she'll learn to expect that, 
And when some douchebag ass clown comes around and breaks that and does something else and is disrespectful, she'll give them one of the few good things that's come out of our young girls' mouths over the past years, and it'll be pointed in the right direction for a, for a change. Talk to the hand. Talk to the hand. And that's what you want from If you want a self-sufficient young lady, you need to teach her to be self-sufficient in all walks of life. And that is going to entail dealing with other children, other young boys, and eventually other young women and other young men. So you model the behavior, and they will emulate it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Shane in Pennsylvania. I just wanted to give you a heads up on a couple of Marines that I met this weekend in the audience. Uh, they're doing some great things. Thought, uh, thought I'd give you a shout-out on it. Uh, just like Bella Med- Medical Ministries can stretch their dollar further than the Red Cross, these guys, uh, they're called Warrior Hike. Uh, they can be found at warriorhike.com and Warrior Hike on Facebook. Uh, they're h- hiking the Appalachian Trail uh, to, try to provide grants for um, adaptive vehicles for veterans that have been wounded. Uh, really should check them out. I spent two days hiking with them in Pennsylvania. It was amazing. Uh, if you could, you know, if any of the audience members, you know, live close to the Appalachian Trail, they're heading northbound. Uh, it'd be great to hook up with them. They're very receptive, and 100% of the donations goes towards grants for uh, adaptive vehicles. Check them out. Again, it's warriorhike.com and Warrior Hike on Facebook. Thanks, Jack. Well, uh, I did check them out, and I think it's a wonderful charity, and I'll tell you what I like about it. I love our veterans uh, charity organizations that, number one, put the majority, if not all, of the funds donated back to the veterans. Now, if someone's going to do full-time fundraising and they're working their ass off and they're bringing in a million dollars a year and they're putting $900,000 to the veterans and they're taking a salary so that they can keep doing it full-time, I actually have no problems with that. I do not like organizations that when you audit their books, they're only putting about 40% of the money to the veterans and, and that type of thing. That's that's ridiculous. So 100% is awesome. And if it grows to where these guys take a salary from it, I, I want to make sure that people understand something. If you want people to be full-time in doing good work like this, then they have to be able to make a living at it. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's when they get too big and too bloated and create general funds and then do fun, like the Red Cross did, help the Haiti people and take $3 million in and, and it just disappears and vanishes like a fart in the air. Small organizations never do that. The other thing I like about this is it's a very clear, specific thing that they're doing, adaptive vehicles. You got a guy comes home, and he's been injured in such a way that he can't drive a normal vehicle or get in and out of a normal vehicle for whatever reason. If you want him to say, okay, I'm disabled, this sucks, but I'm going to move on with my life, I'm going to find somebody that will hire me, I'm going to get my ass a job, I'm going to work, I'm going to support myself, I am going to be able to function in some way in society. One of the biggest hindrances he has is being able to get from home to work. So you're solving that problem so the man can stand up and be self-sufficient. I love that. I'm going to send these guys an email uh, after today's show and ask them if any of them would like to come on the show for an interview and tell us more about what they're doing. I will put a link in today's show notes. I don't know a ton about them. I can't say I'm po- I can't say the way I can about Bella with, with Brandon, where I know for a fact that they're doing what they're saying they're doing. But I have no reason to doubt that. They look really, really solid. And uh, they might be an organization you want to support. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go by and throw them 50 bucks today 
you know, I just got done answering another question with the best way to get, you know, people to behave a certain way is to model the behavior you want to see. So I'm going to live my own words there, and I'm going to make a donation to these guys today, and uh, maybe you'll consider doing it too. All right, uh, next up, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Andy from Fort Bragg calling to say just what a fantastic show. been a while since I called in, listen to every episode. But what I want to talk about is I just wanted to echo what one of my fellow listeners talked about that the end of the world is not coming in 2012, but I believe it's going to be a great change, and it is going to be the end of the world and the end of the world of debt for our family. Hopefully we'll be free of debt by then. I'm grateful for you and your great show and fellow listeners keeping me motivated. And then when the end of the world doesn't happen, we're out of debt. As you've said before, we can buy it all on eBay in January 2013. So thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, Andy, good to hear hear from you again, brother. Um, really, really glad to hear from you, and really glad to hear that you may make your goal of getting out of debt this year, and by the end of the year have no debt and be able to uh, be on a path of purchasing real things with real money in the future instead of purchasing shiny, crappy things with fake money in the future and then having to pay for it for the rest of your damn life. So that's awesome. Now, what Andy's talking about, for those that are newer listeners, is uh, around last year, around 20, uh, December of last year, somebody called in talking about, you know, we're one year away from the, the big December 21st, 2012, end of the world crap. And we all know it's bull crap unless we're nuts and we think a dark star is orbiting the freaking universe and going to come kill us or whatever freaking nonsense people dream up. And the calendar actually ended like six months ago, if you really think it matters, because the Mayans, as advanced as they were, didn't understand leap year. Uh, but anyway... Um, Somebody called in and said, well, maybe we can use the awareness, the general consciousness created by the awareness of anything to say that 2012, December 21st, 2012 can be a year of great, a day of great change in our individual lives, however we choose. And some instance, uh, in some instances, maybe that means we've paid off our debt. Maybe that means that we, by that day, we've gotten into our homestead house. Maybe that means by that day, we've, we've accomplished 90 days worth of food storage. Maybe by that time, we've taught ourselves 10 skills over the next 12 months and we've learned and perfected and now we can use those and whatever that is. And I'm going to tell you this. It's June. There's still about six months. There's still time. Uh, if you want December 21st, 2012 to actually mean something, set some goals to attain by that date and do them. And on that day, when the sun stops in the sky, like it will, because that's astrologically what happens, and it'll stay down there for three days, and on the 25th it'll raise one degree, and you can let that mean whatever you want, but astrologically speaking, that's what happens. That day, that winter solstice, can be a day of great change for you, and you get to pick what it means and how it happens, and you have to actually commit to do something. The actual occurrence doesn't mean a damn thing. It's your choice that matters. And that's a big lesson to learn in self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and individual liberty. Nothing else anybody does is going to have the effect that you deciding that you're going to do something and you make it happen will. So great call, Andy. Thank you. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Ian in Arizona. I am looking to add a whole bunch of fruit trees to some property, and I was wondering if you have any thoughts or knowledge you could pass along about buying bare root trees. I was looking and, and I seem to have a whole lot better, um, a, a much wider range of options in varieties and different types of root stock uh, going with bare root trees rather than my local fairly limited nursery. 
and uh, the prices are also a whole lot better, you know, on the order of two to five dollars per tree instead of twenty-five to thirty. So, I've I've planted a couple regular nursery trees, and they're doing well so far. But I want to add a whole bunch, and I want to add some specific varieties, um, like some specific varieties of apple for cider making, things that I just can't get from the local nursery. So. I'm thinking bare root trees sound like the way to go. I'm wondering if you know anything about them or maybe have a better idea. Thanks for the show. That's a question I'm now more uh, experienced with and better ready to answer for you than any other time in my life because I just planted over 30 bare root trees this spring. Uh, all of them came from Rain Tree Nursery. All of them but one survived. Uh, one is kind of peaked right now, but I think that is a mistake that I made that I'm not sure exactly what happened. But I think I got some uh, on some of the, the compost that I put in the hole. I think it got contaminated with something. Uh, I think it got a little bit of diesel fuel mixed in with it from a, uh, a can that was in the back of my truck, and I didn't realize it until it was too late. Uh, but it does. that one looks like it's going to get through. There's another one that just didn't make it. And I think that whenever you plant 30 or 40 trees, the odds that one might not make it are there. And it is a very harsh environment that I'm growing them in. But this is what I would tell you after this experience. I would not buy them any time other than early spring, period, or maybe late winter. That I would, I would target you know, March, April, February, March, April, maybe the beginning of May. And I would set that as the time I'm going to do it. The next thing that I would advise you to do, Know where every single tree is going to go before you order them, especially if you're ordering a lot of them, and dig all your freaking holes before you place your order. Um, you can you can estimate the hole size fairly easily, uh, but I would go out, and if you dig too big a hole, you can always throw some dirt back in it. Uh, I'll put it to you that way. Uh, with all the rock and the pick action that I had to do, and, and I mean, it was tough to get those trees in the ground fast enough because when they're sent to you, they're generally sent in a dormant state. They've been kept cold, and as soon as they're not kept cold anymore, they have a tendency to want to break dormancy. Uh, so that's another thing. I would set up and have an area that's shaded as often as possible. I would keep your root balls wet. Uh, I would even consider possibly getting a couple bucket uh, buckets with some water in it. And as you start to pull them, they'll usually ship them to you if you order 30, 40 trees in one big bundle. And they'll have a huge bunch of shredded paper in there that's all wet. And uh, as you start pulling them out, eventually you get to a point where like that whole little apparatus kind of falls apart on you. And you need to keep those roots wet. right? I, I'll tell you what not to ever put on a bare root tree that I learned from Sepp Holzer is sawdust. If sawdust begins to dry out, it actually draws the moisture back out of the tree, right? So don't use sawdust. Uh, wet paper seems to be the shipping media of choice for companies like Raintree that know what they're doing. Otherwise, I think it's a great option. I think it's an absolutely great option. And one of the big things that you're not going to deal with when you do a bare root tree is you're not going to deal with root balls that have circling and girdling roots, If you plant a tree that comes out of a bucket, what you really need to do is soak those roots down and get all of the existing so soil that's in that bucket out of there and find any roots that are already traveling in a circle and either straighten them out or prune them. Because what can happen with those trees is that root will grow underground. It'll stay in a circle, and it'll get thicker and bigger as the tree gets thicker and bigger. It'll send off all its laterals. Your, your tree looks beautiful. Three, four, five years in, your tree is awesome. All of a sudden, your tree starts to look sick. And you're like, oh, what's wrong with my tree? So you fertilize it, and you prune it, and you, you mulch it, and you irrigate it, and it just gets sicker and sicker and sicker, and then it dies. 
And you go, I don't understand why my tree died. And then, you know, you call a horticulturist in and they dig your tree up and they find this root that went all the way around your tree that stayed that way because you didn't straighten it out when you planted it when it was young, got big, and it basically strangled itself just below the soil line. Just like putting a wire around a tree and cutting through the cambium and the tree strangled itself to death. So that's one thing you don't have to worry about with bare root trees. The shipping on them is much lower because you're not shipping all that weighted dirt. Uh, I ordered 30, I think it was 34 trees total. They came in a, a big square box, about six foot long and about two foot square. Uh, so it wasn't that expensive to ship. It came in all the way from Washington. But right time of year, dig your holes in advance, have everything ready to go. And, and, and go nuts with it and, and follow the pruning advice. A lot of times they'll have extra branches and all people are afraid to prune them down. Prune them back that first year. Let them focus on root growth that first year. Your second year they really start to shape up for you. Anyway, let's take another call. You know what I said earlier too that I, um, I would uh, like to have a beekeeper on? I wouldn't mind having someone on that's really mastered the art of establishing and pruning trees. So if you are like a, a pruning master and you think we could come on the air and do a show on that and different pruning types and methodologies and things like that for different trees, that would be awesome. Let me know and uh, fill out the guest form. We'll get you on. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Brady from Utah. Um, catching hygge culture at a perfect time. I'm just enamored with the idea. Getting ready to put in a half acre uh, backyard. And um, my question, I've searched the forums. I can't find anything that directly answers this, and I've also searched online. Um, I have a cabinet shop. We built custom cabinet doors, and I've got a, basically an infinite supply of, call it, 8-inch by 8-foot uh, strips, and then also about 3 inches by 4- to 5-inch uh, chunks of mainly alder, um, a lot of maple, Oak, cherry, a little bit of walnut. Uh, I know not all of, I know walnut's not great for plants. Um, so my question is, can I use that stuff, just piles of that, instead of uh, just, you know, brush and shrubs and uh, tree stumps, like, like is more common. The moisture content on my stuff is about 7% right now going into it. Um, what kind of effect would that have? in uh, trying to design a system like this. I appreciate uh, any help you can give me. Thanks. Okay, I'm not in love with the size, especially the smaller pieces, but it'll work. It'll work just fine. And this guy called back the next day and gave me very specific ratios. It's X percent alder, X percent, you know, oak, X percent. And here, here's the wood is wood is wood is wood. As long as it's not like locust, right, Uh, or maybe red cedar. I don't care what kind of wood it is. Different woods break down at different times, and that gives you different ages to your your culture life cycle, depending on what you're planting. You're planting very hardy perennials. For all intents and purposes, it's a per permanent system. If you're doing annual gardening, it could be anywhere from a two to four year system to to a ten to twelve to fifteen sixteen year system. With the wood mix, mostly hardwood, you got there. You got a long term system you're looking at. There's a couple things I'd be careful of. One, don't 
overwood it, right? Don't end up with like this pile of wood that's like six feet tall and you only got six inches of cover on it, right? You want to have a good amount of cover. I want about a foot of cover minimum everywhere over the wood. And that means some areas it's going to be like if you're using a, a hilled mound, then out toward the edges it might be significantly more. But I'd like to get at least you know, 10 inches, but closer to a foot of cover over my wood. If you're burying it in the ground, that usually happens anyway. Whatever you dig out, you take to the side, you put it in the ground, and you heal it back up. So that takes care of it. And, and that's, that's one thing. Also, tying in with yesterday's show, understand if you live in Utah and you put in a hugaculture bed, it's going to take a lot longer because of not as wet of a climate as it is in the East Coast for that wood to start to actually rot and sponge up. It also, if you put it in right now, and this isn't your time of the year where you get a lot of rain, it isn't going to do diddly crap year one anyway, but it's not going to do nothing, right? The moisture count content of the wood doesn't freaking matter. It doesn't matter because it's not the wood's existing moisture that does anything. It's as the wood begins to decay and it sponges up, it takes in moisture, and that moisture has to be available. So you're going to get the most of your moisture uptake in your spring as you get your snow melt out there and your spring rains. So in your first year after construction, and in your climate it might be two years, you need to water the hell out of it. You need to make plans for irrigation initially until that thing starts to break down and gets charged up. My only caveat with when I say wood is wood is wood is if there is any preservatives or, or things like that on the wood, I would not use it. Uh, like copper sulfate or anything like that, I would not use it. I'm not even that worried about the toxicology of it. What I'm telling you is the wood ain't going to break down. right? So if it's untreated wood... I don't care where it comes from, and unless it's something like with a very antifungal, anti-breakdown uh, thing where it's going to, you know, you put a locust pole up for a fence post, it'll last a hundred years. And, and I mean, a hundred years, the part that's in the ground will last too. So obviously, black walnut, black locust, uh, red cedar, those are the ones maybe I would avoid. Anything else, just use it. The smaller pieces, in many instances, I'd say would be a detriment. It's not going to last as long. It's going to break down faster than having this big, you know, big hunks of log in there. But in your dry climate, that might actually be an advantage because you're going to have less breakdown. You're going to have more arid conditions. So all I would say is try it. I would do it a little at a time, though. Don't go too nuts with it. Ideally, you'd be taking long logs that run lengthwise with the bed. I mean, that really it seems to be from what I've seen, the best, but I don't see any reason this wouldn't work. Another thing to look at, you mentioned sawdust. I do not like sawdust for mulch. If there's any way that this stuff could be chipped instead of dusted as a mulch, it would be an awesome hardwood mulch. It would have a slow breakdown, and I'm talking when you mulch, you mulch, mulch that shit like four to six inches thick. You do that, and you've got an awesome mulch there. It, sawdust I don't like. It, it, it gets bound and matted up. When you want to use wood chips, you want different sizes, and you don't put, you don't dig wood chips in. They lay on top of the ground, and that is that is all. 
Ideally, though, with wood chips, though, you're really better off getting mixed wood varieties from tree cuttings because then you have little pieces of bark, little pieces of needle. You get all kinds of variants in size, even if they all go through the same shipping thing because the bark shatters, the needles shatter, etc. Uh, so that's a better way to get your wood mulch than, you know, uh, junk wood, leftover scraps. But I don't see why this won't work for hugu culture. Again, I want you guys to kind of get this through your head. As long as it ain't treated or it's not a type of wood that specifically won't break down, even when buried under moist, wet dirt, wood is wood is wood. Smaller breaks down faster. System doesn't last as long. That's, that's the only real variance there. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is John from Ohio, and I had a survival podcast business question for you. The question is, can I mirror your business model that you have with the TSP? I have a great idea for an entire series of podcasts that I hopefully see turning into a business. Uh, I've looked at several different business models, and I keep coming back to what you have with TSP. You've said before that imitation is the best form of flattery. Well, do you mind if I imitate you? Um, Specifically, the structure that you have with the Survival Podcast. Uh, I really look forward to hearing your question, and thanks for the great show. Talk to you later. Bye. It's, I mean, in some instances, it's not really my model anyway. It's like AAA's model, right? I mean, they give discounts and all. I just made my discounts actually freaking matter, mean something, and real. Uh, so if you wanted to set up a membership program that offered your uh, viewers, listeners, readers, whatever you're doing, the ability to support your show and also to receive some sort of benefits for it and emulate what I'm doing, I don't care at all as long as you don't do something stupid and claim it's your idea. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I appreciate people citing me as, as inspiration when they actually use what I have and they get the idea somewhere else, then I would say cite whoever you got the idea from. Um, Brian Black over at ITS runs a program very, very similar to the Member Support Brigade. Uh, he calls it as a plank owner program and, uh, it, it's really awesome. And I'll tell you what, it, it, it came from me because I talked to him about it, helped him set it up. So I mean, obviously I'm gonna help someone else set one up just like what I did. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell somebody else not to do it. Uh, you don't own an idea, so that's fine. I would just say if you ever somebody asks you or, or what have you, you tell them where you got the idea from and don't claim that you figured it out all by yourself. Um, I, I think the other thing would be about the only thing that would bug me is if someone set one of these up and started going to all the people that I already have discount agreements set up with. I, I would consider that a little bit of stepping on your toes. If you look at what Brian's done, if you go over, and he actually calls it a crew leader. Plank owner was at the beginning, so the crew leader. He has a whole list of people and what they do, and there's you know maybe one that overlaps because we both were approached by the same person as an advertiser and of course we both hit up our advertisers to support our membership programs but you'll see a completely different uh list of people and what's good about that is that if you do that then when you are selling to your members if you do happen to have a person that's a member of mine well they get something totally different by joining you so we're not really splitting the pool people are simply deciding which one is more advantageous or maybe both are advantageous so um what i don't like when i see about the only thing i don't like that i see happen occasionally is when i see somebody set up a, a, a site that's in the exact same niche as mine 
And, and I know it when it happens. They immediately go down my list of advertisers and approach all my advertisers and say, hey, come advertise with me. There's nothing really wrong with that, but it's not a, it's not a recipe for success. Um, and I don't, I don't have a problem when the advertisers sign up either, really. I, in fact, I gotta tell you, I don't even think that bothers me, really. I mean, I look at it this way. I'm a libertarian, so I believe in capitalism and whatever you can do, you can do. And as long as you're not, as long as you're not lifting somebody else's material, whether it's mine or anybody else's and claiming it as your own, uh, you know, then I really don't care what you do. And I don't think anybody else should either. If you're good at what you do, you'll have success. And if you're not good at what you do, you're not going to have success. It doesn't matter who you model. So I have no problem with, uh, with what you want to do. Uh, the guy actually sent me an email and said, I told, uh, he told me what the niche is he is in and it's, Somewhat related, but not really related to what I do. So uh, it seems like a completely clean slate to me. Um, and I think he just didn't want to give the niche away because he didn't want to taint the answer for in people's minds, which I thought was cool. It wasn't like he was trying to hide it or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, go nuts with it. I mean, I think anybody can do that. But, I, I mean... Not just This is not just for me. I want people to understand this. I think it's for anybody. When you are emulating somebody or you are citing something that came from somebody else, I think that you should tell people where you got the information from or where you got the idea from, at least in passing. So, like, there's people right out in my audience that love Alex Jones, and there's people that hate Alex Jones. And I'm you know, on the fence about it. Sometimes I think he does great work, and sometimes I think he just is freaking nuts. Um, and... But, you know, I'll get a story for him, from him that whether I like his take on it or not, he was the journalist that broke the story, and I'll, I'll run the story. And when, when I do, I'll say this came from Prison Planet, Alex Jones's organization, and they did a good job of covering this. And I'll get emails from some people that don't like Alex, and they'll say, yeah, he's a shill, he's actually being used by the... I don't know if any of that's true. I don't really care. And my point is that if that's the source of the information then my duty in running the information is to cite the source. And, and I'd like to see more of that among bloggers and podcasters and things like that. There is one person out there in particular, you know, and I know who you are, and you obviously listen to my show, that so emulates what we do here that John Willis from SOE Tactical Gear sent me an email one time and said, you know what, this guy is so, you know, like, the next day doing what you did the day before that I expected when your buddy died and you did a show about your buddy dying for him to come out with a show that said his buddy died. And, and you know, and, and that person's not very successful with what they're doing. And, and so I don't care if you do stuff like that to me or anybody else. I'm just saying it's not a recipe for success. The people on the internet today want something original, new and different. So be who you are. I'm kind of launching a little bit into a business podcast, but um, it was a business question. So the caller, go nuts with it. Go, I mean, having a membership program that offers discounts is not my idea. It, it really isn't. It's, it, I, I mean, I, I'm sure there's tons of people that have done it in different, different niches. I looked at it from one side, all of the like, get-rich-quick internet marketing bullshit stuff that's out there to scam you out of your money. They kind of do that already with, you know, free report, you know, get your reports and all by being a member and super secret videos about how to make money fall out of your ass or whatever. And then, you know, but I looked at it and went, well, the membership model's good. 
but what's the value? Because it's not just more material, because I want to give as mo most of the material I create out for free anyway. And then the value add was, well, let's get people that are authors with ebooks to donate, and let's get people that want business to want access to my members to give them real meaningful discounts. So it's not my idea. It's just I tweaked the idea from both of those worlds to make it better. And I've tried to be, you know, upfront about that. Anyway, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is David from Alabama. My question is about the use of wheat straw as mulch. Around here, we see 300-acre wheat fields with not a weed in them, and that concerns me that there's some pretty nasty chemicals on the wheat, and I wonder if that might carry into the straw and maybe the Roundup affects the productivity of my garden, and I just wonder what you thought about that. Thanks. Well, with wheat, it's not Roundup, but it doesn't mean it's okay. Um, the most commonly used herbicide that I know of on wheat is 2,4-D. Uh, and 2,4-D is a very nasty herbicide on just about anything broadleaf, but generally will leave away alone things uh, in the grass family like wheat, rye, corn, sorghum, etc. So they'll use 2,4-D and atrazine on those types of plants, and there's generally quite a bit of re re residue when you see a giant wheat field without a single weed in it. Um, that's, that's not usually a good sign. Whenever you get straw or rotted hay or anything like that and you're thinking about using it as mulch, it's important to test it. And this is something I learned from Marjorie at BackyardFoodProduction.com on her DVD uh, that we advertise on the site. And basically what you do is get a big bundle of that straw, shove it into a five-gallon bucket, and fill that bucket up with water. And keep topping it off and keep that bucket full of water. Get yourself another bucket or three. In each bucket, put in some dirt, some good potting, clean potting soil. You know it's not going to have any problems. And uh, do about three buckets like this and plant two of them. Well, plant all three of them the same. Water one bucket with water from some other source and water the other two buckets with the water that has been soaking in your straw and hay. Uh, and again, beans or peas, something like that, some type of legume. They're most sensitive to herbicide. And if both of your buckets that you're watering with the straw water have a lot of problems and the, the bean or pea doesn't grow well or, or dies or whatever, and plant quite a few, because every once in a while, you know, if you plant one, you know, sometimes a seed just throws you a runt plant. So plant, you know, five, ten plants in each pot. And if there's a dramatic difference between the ones being watered with the water from the straw and the ones being watered with just another water source, and it's a negative difference in favor of the straw, don't use it. I mean, that's, that, that's the easiest way. Now, things like 2,4-D and atrazine do break down over time, but they can be quite persistent. They can have half-lives as long as five to seven years. So if you've done this already and you've had problems, the key is to stop bringing in the contaminated stuff and just keep doing good practices, and eventually it will pass. But it's the only way that I know to test it from an unknown source. But when you're in farm country and you're looking at miles and miles and miles of wheat or barley or anything like that, and when you look out there and it's grown, there ain't nothing green except the wheat or the barley or, or what have you you almost 100% know for a fact that's what's going on. And they actually spray that stuff while it's standing. A lot of times what they'll do is they'll till the field, they'll spray it, they'll plant it, and when it's in what they call its dough stage, 
they'll spray it again, and then they'll wait until harvest. Sometimes they even spray it with things specifically to kill it, so it'll dry at a time, so it all dries at the same time, so it can be all harvested at the same time. So I have a real problem with straw and hay off of conventional ag in any situation because it's almost universal that they're all doing it. So if I have it from an unknown source, that's how I would test it. And it's why I prefer um, wood mulch to straw mulch because when I get wood mulch, And I'm getting stuff cut off of trees and everything from various sources. There can be, with you know, people using Roundup and, 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 and other uh, herbicides in their lawns and all, some issues with it. But it's a very varied source, and I'm getting stuff off of treetops and all. And only so much is that going to get up there before it starts to adversely affect the tree. Um, and I also think probably one of the best sources is going to be your stuff that's... that's uh, That's, uh, that's done by like highway crews and stuff like that. It's cut out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, a lot of times they do spray the edge of the, the roads, but that's gotten to be less and less in the outer reaching areas because I can't afford it. It's, it's less expensive to send somebody there three times a year and just cut whatever's there and leave it there than try to turn it in. Like, cause herbicide, realize that the main reason that people spray herbicides, other than in urban environments where they don't want to come through sidewalk cracks, is it's not they don't want anything to grow there. They only want certain things to grow there. So these people that are managing like county roads and stuff like that, they don't really give a damn what's growing on the side of the road. As long as it's not causing problems, as long as something's growing on the side of the road. So that stuff from your, your, your contractors that are out there trimming those overhanging branches, overhanging the roads, trimming them off the power lines and stuff like that. You get wood mulch like that, generally speaking, you're going to be good to go. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Tom from Roanoke, Virginia. I just have a quick ammunition storage question. I know you said in the past that for oxygen absorbers, you could use um, one of those hand warmers or foot warmers like they sell at Walmart. Basically, that would just, um, as it oxidizes, remove the oxygen from the container. What I want to know is if I use military-grade um, 30 and 50 caliber ammunition storage boxes with a rubber seal, can I use one of those hand foot warmers in there as an O2 absorber, or would I have to be concerned about whether or not the small amount of heat generated could somehow degrade the ammunition. Love what you do with your show, and thank you very much. Bye-bye. Easy one to answer. Number one, probably don't need to, probably doesn't matter. I'm not real big on O2 absorbers with my ammunition. Just not. Uh, oxygen is not that big of a problem, uh, especially if you've got a full ammo can. There's only so much room in there in the first place. Moisture is a bigger danger to ammo than anything else. I know people get, like, one of, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, God, the word just went away. Vacuum seal everything, you know, in the prepper world, and, and everything has to be low oxygen. I have ammo that was made in the 1930s in Turkey, stored in some arms room, obviously and not very well done. 8mm ammo that was originally designed for 8mm belt-fed machine guns that was then taken off by the armory at some point and put into five-round stripper clips designed for the Turkish Mauser so that they could just shove them in, you know, and, and your, your infantrymen with the old bolt action. So this was this is World War I, World War II-era shit from the Turkish military. And uh, it was designed for these Mausers that were made in the 1890s that 
fired some 7.7 weird round that doesn't exist anymore. And in the 1930s, these 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 you know Turkey wanted to enter the war effort, was worried about World War II, and didn't have a lot of money. So they took these old Mausers and had it, sent them to Germany, had them rebarreled, and then took some of this machine gun ammo and set it aside for infantry use and put it in like there's like five pockets and ten rounds, two stripper clips in each pocket, and these old crappy-looking cotton bandoliers with these corroded buttons on them. And some of this ammo is so bad that it's the, the, the brass cases have degraded from the corrosive uh, powder that's in them to where you can take a round out and you can wiggle the bullet and you can pull the uh, full metal jacketed bullet out of the cartridge with your fingers. Some of it, that didn't happen to The stuff that it didn't happen to, I have one of them old Turkish Mausers, and I take it out once in a while and shoot it, and I got this ammo for like, I don't know, it was dirt cheap a while ago. They were they were dumping this stuff on the market. I still have it sitting in a foot locker, just sitting there, and I have had not a single misfire out of this old crappy-ass, corroded-looking, shitty ammo. So, if you've got new, factory, military ammo with smokeless powder sealed in an ammo can... You, you probably don't even need to worry about it. So that's the, that's the one side of the answer. The other side of the answer, though, is if you want to do it, do it. There's nowhere near enough heat in there to damage anything. And understand that that heat thing and your O2 absorber are the exact same thing. It's not a substitution. It is the same thing. They work the same way. There's iron filings and, a, and an oxidation accelerant in there that accelerates the, the the speed at which the iron filings will rust. If you put iron filings somewhere, they will rust over time. If you put them with an accelerate, a rust accelerant, they'll rust a lot faster. As soon as they're exposed to oxygen, they'll start to rust real, real quickly. When iron rusts, it gives off heat. If you take one of them little O2 absorbers that you buy from you know a, a, a place where they, they sell them, like a food storage place or whatever, you take them out of their sealed container and you hold it in your hand, it'll warm up just like a hand warmer. It's the same thing. When it's taken the oxygen that's available up, even if the iron's not fully rusted, even if there's still some of that accelerant there, it stops because it doesn't have any more oxygen. So it's just not a concern, but you probably don't need to do it. And I had another question about ammo storage and O2 absorbers and all this. So I just took this one because it makes a broader point that the hand warmers are not a substitute. They're the same thing. If you take the stuff that's in there out, it's the same stuff, right? So if the, the hand warmer was going to get that much warmer for that much longer, then the O2 absorber, that just means you didn't use enough cc's of O2 absorbers to get all the oxygen out of whatever you're storing in the first place. So those hand warmer, foot warmer things, they sell at Walmart. And, you know, in the, right before hunting season, that's not the time to buy them. They'll actually end up kind of costing you more in most instances. But toward the end of hunting season, uh, when they start to bring the stuff in for spring and they put all that crap on clearance, you can get those things for dirt cheap. And as long as they're still sealed in their package... They're a great, you know, great thing for a large O2 absorber. Anyway, uh, on the ammo, guys, don't overthink the ammo. Keep it dry and keep it stored at relatively, you know, cool temperatures, and you're just not going to have any problems. Again, uh, this this stuff that I have, I think it actually was made before the 30s. I think it was put into these bandoliers, 
and uh, stripper clips in the 30s, if I remember the story right when I bought it. Cheaper Than Dirt was selling these things. I bought this stuff when I, li I lived in Pennsylvania. All right, so we're going over 12 years ago now. And I've, I had the gun out just the other day, and I fired some rounds in it, and they fired just fine. Um, so all I can say is I don't overstress ammo storage at all. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Eric from the cornfields of Indiana. I got a, a kind of paleo question for you, I guess you could say. Um, I didn't, you might even have to refer to this uh, maybe on your expert council. But the question is, if our bodies uh, can pretty much burn two types of energy, either sugar or fat, and that's why we should uh, you know, drop the low carb or drop all carbs and then go on to fat primarily, and a moderate protein is what I've heard from many different sources. Uh, the question is then, are we only eating vegetables for nutrients? And once that's done, do we just eliminate by waste the rest of it, or does that... Uh, or is there something else we get from vegetables? Because under the uh, explanation I've heard from, say, Dr. Norik Gaudis and, and other doctors, that uh, we either burn sugar or fat, well, vegetables don't really fit into either one of those. So, uh, But obviously, you know, we need the other nutrients, vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin E, you know. So uh, I was kind of curious as to what the answer is to that and uh, maybe get a little better explanation of how that all works out. If you can, I'd appreciate it. Uh, have a great one. Keep up the great work, Jack. Bye. I don't really have an expert council member that could answer that. I think Rob Wolf would be the best for it, and I think he's too busy to do that uh, for us. But I'll answer it based on my understanding of things and my view over the years of researching this stuff. And again, even though I jumped on the paleo thing about it a little over a year ago now, and I have had great results with it, my history with the concept of a high-fat, moderate-protein, low-carbohydrate diet uh, goes all the way back to the 90s. And the first time that I ever did that, I felt great. And it was, it was corporate lifestyle and, and client entertainment and all these fancy restaurants in Manhattan that took me away from it. And then it was corporate misery toward the end that had me eating garbage I knew better to eat that, that, that made me the guy that was way too heavy. So... I do have a long history of studying the, the medical basis of this, the science and the chemistry behind it. And the problem with the question, and why I say it's well, sort of, kind of, is the answer, is that it assumes that vegetables don't have any carbohydrates. Uh, what they have in most instances, when we're talking about things like peppers and, and uh, cauliflower and broccoli and celery, is a very small amount. So... For instance, let's say we look at something like broccoli. If we look at broccoli and we say about three and a half ounces of it in, in raw form, it only has about 33 calories. But those calories are primarily carbohydrate. It has about 1.8 grams of carbohydrate. So there is some carbohydrate there. Uh, if we look at something like green pepper, we have about 15 calories in three and a half ounces and 2.6 are carbohydrates. So there is some caloric input there. There is some carbohydrate input there. And that's okay because it's very moderate compared to me putting that, 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 you know, some three ounces of broccoli and three ounces of peppers in a, in a green salad alongside a, a juicy piece of ribeye or pork or chicken or something like that. So, Uh, it's a moderate input, but most of the caloric input from vegetables is, is, uh, is carbohydrate-based. 
If we look at something like a potato, which is off the, the, the thing, we look at like 75 uh, on a white potato, uh, 75 uh, calories was 17 grams of, uh, of carbohydrates. So that's why it's kind of a, a moderation to almost never food white potato in the, in the paleo lifestyle. When I look at sweet potato, which goes on the in moderation list, then we're going to say if we eat 115 calories of sweet potato, we're only getting 28 grams of carbs. So it's something I don't want to eat a lot of every day, but that's why it's on the moderate list. So there's some carbohydrate input there. There's also some protein. Uh, from this stuff as well. But yes, the primary concept with our vegetables is they're a nutrient source. So your caloric intake is primarily from meats, uh, and then your, your nutrients come a lot from seeds and vegetables, as well as from meats. There's a lot of nutrient in meat as well. It's very nutrient-dense food. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the thing there. Now, the other thing that you're getting when you eat vegetables is fiber, bulk. Now, there's varying differences on whether or not this is a good thing. Dr. Greg Ellis, who I have a lot of respect for, but I disagree with on this, thinks that fiber is bad. That fiber is something your body's not designed to digest, so why the hell are you eating it? The fact that you don't digest it and it is eliminated, in uh, the concept that if you only ate meat, you wouldn't be able to take a dump, is just ridiculous. Uh, we have Eskimos that live the entire winter on nothing but whale meat and whale fat, and they are able to, to handle that function of their body. So this thing that we need fiber to be able to go to the bathroom is just stupid. But I think that if humans evolved eating this type of a diet, um, then it's probably good things to be eating. And it does give you a feeling of fullness, and when coupled with meat and fat, you're good to go. Now, the other thing to understand when you say the body can only burn sugar or fat is that that means that protein is converted to sugar, and carbohydrate is converted from complex sugars to simple sugars. So when your food comes into your body, and this is, this is biochemistry, I don't care if you're a vegan. I don't care if you think meat is bad. I don't care if you think high fat is bad. What I'm about to tell you, we, we've let, we've just left Jack opinion to going to Jack telling you fact based on biochemistry and medical medical fact. When you consume any food, that that is the two choices in which your body can burn it. If you eat fat, your body will not turn that fat into sugar and then burn it, and it will not take that fat and store it in its current form. It will burn the that as it is as fuel that's how the body works if you eat protein your body will take the protein and break it down and from it derive uh, carbohydrate sugars basically simple sugars by the time it's all over with at a ratio of about 60% so if you eat 100 grams of protein your body will end up with about 60 grams of sugar out of it. If you eat 100 grams of fat, your body will end up with 100 grams of fat used as fuel. Neither one is necessarily bad until we push the glucose level in the blood over a certain level. And when the insulin level comes up above 18 microliters per unit in your blood, I don't care how much of a caloric deficit you're running, the body's ability to burn its own fat reserves stops. Now, if you're running enough of a caloric deficit, you'll never get there. 
But if you're if you're you're doing this crap where you're doing the dieting, you're counting your calories, and you're supposed to have 1,600 calories a day, and you're at 1,550, but you're pushing your microliters up above the, the 18 microliters of insulin due to sugar shock into the body because of high carbohydrate intake, because you're living on rice and beans the way your nutritionist told you to, your body will harvest its own protein to maintain its fat stores. Because it cannot, will not, does not burn fat while the now as soon as your as soon as the blood sugar comes back below, if you're in caloric deficit, it can, and that's why caloric deficit dieting will work to a degree. But when you're eating primarily fat as your primary intake, your body's it's like putting gas on a fire. It burns it quickly and efficiently without a conversion process. Now again, that's biochemistry. I, I mean, I. I I know it's not what you've been told. I know it's not what you've been taught. I know that based on all of the, 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 the crap and marketing out there that it's very hard to believe. But everybody that's tried it's gotten the same results. And we've had people that have, have, have literally gone onto this style of eating and have had problems that are severe. Uh, there's been documented cases of people diagnosed with, with MS. That were having massive problems with it because MS is something you manage, you don't cure. That have gone to a point now where the doctor looks at them and says, "If I didn't already diagnose you with MS, I wouldn't be able to diagnose you today." Say, but what they're saying is it's still there, but I can't find it. I can't find any symptoms of it. And not saying you're cured, but you're in basically a remission state. And we've had people type two diabetics, type two diabetics. I don't need doctor says you don't need insulin anymore. In fact, stop because you're going to hurt yourself with it. it it's uh, it, it's pretty uh, amazing what happens. But yeah, your 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 vegetables are mainly a source uh, of nutrient, a little bit of calories, a little tiny bit of protein, uh, almost no fat in in 99% of the instances. There's some vegetables that have a little bit of fat. I'm like anything you can derive oil from. If you can derive oil from it, there's some fat in there. So corn uh, would be one instance of something that would have a little bit of fat in it, but Then you you bring into that mix. I think it's important that we bring into the mix seeds and nuts. So almonds, uh, cashews, sunflower seed, pumpkin seed. Another moderation food because there's quite a bit of carbohydrate in some, not all of them. Uh, there's there's almost no carbohydrate in almond. That's why it's so uh, well esteemed by the the high high you know high protein high fat uh, paleo diet. But it's you know it's got some issues with uh, Um, omega sixes, but unless you're eating like a can of them a day, I, I I don't even worry about it. Especially if you're doing a varied diet. The big thing I want people to take away from since we're back into talking about paleo again, paleo is not a boring diet. Paleo is not a diet without a lot of variety in it. There's a very small group of foods we don't eat: cereal grains, rice, white potatoes. I mean, that's 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 it, and everything else. With certain moderation things here and there, it's pretty much on the menu. So if you've been kicking it around, give it a shot. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Charles in Iowa. And I was listening to your call-in show from a couple weeks ago, and you were talking at length about heirlooms and hybrids, specifically with tomatoes and volunteer tomatoes. And it's sort a question for me, and I know you said you might do a whole show on hybrids and heirlooms. So feel free to use this just as uh, something to address during that show. Don't feel obligated at all to play this call. But my question is just growing different varieties of the same fruit or vegetable in, uh, somewhat near each other in the garden 
and the, the possibility of cross-pollination. So say you have two different heirloom varieties of tomato, uh, is there a rule of thumb about how far apart those need to be to prevent cross-pollination? I've heard you talk before about doing manual pollination and closing up the flowers on certain kinds of plants. And uh, to be frank, I just I don't want to be doing that in, in the interest of time. Um, but I'm not that concerned. But just just from a saving seeds standpoint, is there a good separation distance for different varieties of plants that uh, that uh, and a source of that information you could point us to? Thanks, Jeff. Well, it it probably is a, a, a about time for another show on seed saving. We're starting to get into the main gardening season. We'll be coming into a lot of harvest. A lot of people will be want a saving seed. So maybe I'll do a show next week specifically on seed saving. But I'd like to just give you a little bit of guidance. First of all, I'll publish a link today of uh, of a website with a page where you can uh, get separation distances. And there are separation distances, and it depends on what you're growing. Um, how far you need to isolate things based on uh, what you're growing. But let's let's talk a little bit about what those distances are and why sometimes the hand-pollinating method is the best method. When we look at something like a tomato, tomatoes are what you call a perfect flower, just like a pepper. And most things in the nightshade family are also a perfect flower. That means they get a tremendous amount of pollination from the plant that's directly next to them, if they're the same species, and, and from their own flowers. In fact, they can, you know, the, the one flower can actually have a, you know, a pollinator go in there and pollinate itself with itself. And it's usually a little bit better if we get some, some cross-action between two different plants of the same species and the same variety. But it, 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 so it has a relatively short isolation distance. So tomato, tomatillo, pepper, you're going to want to have um, isolation distances of about 30 feet to ensure that most of the, the, the fruit that you get is going to then reproduce true to type. If we move into something like squash, though, right, Because of the pollinators that, that pollinate squash, because there's less flowers, because they have a male and a female flower, uh, and because they have such large flowers that are so attractive, and because they're not a perfect flower, again, male and female, there's a much greater potential for cross-pollination. So it, we, we generally look at um, USDA is telling us that we want our squash about a quarter mile apart from each other, and some people are saying as much as a half mile, to ensure that we get viable uh, seed that's going to reproduce two to type without hybridization between different types of squash. So with squash, there's there's four varieties. There's um, basically our pumpkins uh, that are going to be uh, our seed mixta. Uh, they're going to have like our butternut-style squash, our winter squash, seed mochata, uh, seed pipo, Uh, which I know those are actually our, 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 our general, uh, pumpkins, acorn squash, summer squash, and zucchini. And there's, there's certain large pumpkins and large Hubbard squash, I'm sorry, that are your, your C maxima. And if we have a C mixta and a C maxima variety, and we can learn that when we buy our seeds by looking at them, we don't have to worry about cross pollination there. Uh, if we have butternut squash and it's sitting next to summer squash like zucchini, we don't have too much to worry about. But if we have a butternut squash, Uh, and, and we have a long neck pumpkin. Uh, those are both uh, moshada, and they will cross pollinate. So if we want to grow more than those two, you know, if we want to grow two of the same uh, varieties uh, for spe or two of the same species, 
uh, of squash, we have no choice but to hand pollinate. Now, we do not have to worry. A lot of people worry that, like, my squash will cross-pollinate and I'll get bad squash this year. In the F1 generation, the first cross, it's going to look the same, taste the same, be the same. It's if you save the seed, that second generation is going to be some sort of a hybrid. And then your third generation, you really don't know what you're going to get. Right? So what we do in that instance is this hand pollination. Now, I want you to understand how simple this is, though. You don't have to do it with all of them. You only have to do it with the ones you want to save seeds. And let's face it, if you save two or three winter squash for seeds... You've got tons of seeds. So all you do is look for a female flower. And you look for that female flower right when it's about to open. Grab a male flower. Pull the petals off it. Pull your female flower open. Take the, 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 two, the two parts of the, each flower, the, the stamen and the pistils, and just touch them together. I've even taken the male flower and just basically uh, you, can, you can shove it right into the female flower and tape it together like that so that they're just together and uh, and, and, and tape it up so that no pollinators can get in there and that flower falls off. Well, doing that takes like a minute, maybe a minute and a half with your with the squash that you want to save seed from. So don't write it off because some of the separation distances, you're going to be down to a point where you can't do it on your property. You can probably get two different p tomatoes 30 feet apart with things planted in between them uh, without a lot of problems. But when we look at things like gourds, half a mile, garlic, one mile, fennel, half a mile, uh, cucumbers, and there's most things in the cucurbit, squash, melon family, half a mile. Most people have a half a mile to separate them. Cilantro, half a mile. Corn, two miles. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a long way. And corn will actually pollinate further than that. Now, your corn, there's some things we can do with corn that are really creative and simple. Corn, you've got your silk where your cobs are. And you've got your tassels where the pollen is, and the, the pollen has to get on the silk. So if I wanted to grow two different species of corn, and I didn't want them to cross-pollinate, I want to save seeds, I would plant an early corn variety, and I would plant it about four weeks before I planted a late corn variety. And they would go to, to pollen and be in silk at different times. So we, can, we don't just have to separate our plants in space. We can also separate certain plants that... that that go to the reproductive cycle, reproduce once, and then die, we can separate them in time. So, yeah, maybe I'll do a show on this next week. It's been a long time, and I think a lot of people are going to be wanting to, uh, to, uh, to do this. And then in some situations, we can let some hybridization happen and not really worry about it too much. You know, they tell me lamb's quarters is five miles, but do I really care? What's going to be the result? You know, is it worth seeing? I know that Sepp Holzer doesn't really worry about this very much. He just plants and polycultures the crap out of everything and keeps planting it, and eventually his own varieties develop. Um, so we can take a, a blended approach. We can be very selective with certain things, and we can let other things kind of mix themselves up a little bit and see what the results are, as long as we're not going to rely on that seed for production that we're going to count on. And with that, I've got the show wrapped up today. Great questions again today, guys. Uh, please call in for next week's show. And if you, again, have called in more than three weeks ago, you may want to call that in again, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. on our TVs. Sometimes we forget. Are what we eat I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess when we follow all the rules
Nobody up there cares. They're living. 